Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Obesity has been in the news again recently, with the UK government urging the public to lose weight, to beat COVID-19 and protect the NHS. With this greater public awareness, more patients may be asking their GPs how to lose weight, or we might even be contacting patients who are obese to advise them how to lose weight. But what do we say? How do you lose weight? In today's podcast, we'll ask GP Stephanie DiGiorgio about the GP's role and Professor of Metabolic Medicine Naveed Sattar about the evidence base for losing weight. I'm Tom Nolan, uh, GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And as usual, I'm joined by Jenny and Navjoit. Uh, hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And I can see from, because um, we're, we're doing this over uh, video, of course, that you're in your toilet. Well, <laughs> not bathroom. in the toilet, <laughs> sitting next to the toilet. Next to the toilet. I can see a microphone on a, on a toilet seat. <laughs> Needs must. <laughs> and hi, Navjoy. Hi, Tom. Uh, I'm Navjoy Lada. I'm the head of education at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. I am not in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yes, you look on the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jenny. But you know, we're all trying to make it work in this uh, this new new COVID post COVID yeah. landscape. Absolutely. My family's you know clumping up in our bubble with some of my in-laws and yeah. um, despite the numerous rooms in this house there is not another private recording space all right well I, just to make you feel a bit better my computer is on our um, baby changing table so. <laughs> <laughs> so which which one of our circumstances is least sanitary uh, that's true, yeah. <laughs> uh, right let's start talking about obesity um I thought I'd start by just um, coming clean about probably my own biases. I feel like I, I was brought up to to be quite negative about obesity and weight. And, you know, I'm sure my parents, not that they're listening, and probably good that they're not, but would would have brought me up to, to think it's quite a negative thing to be to be fat or obese. Uh, and certainly on the playground and I think, yes, the, the, the fat child got, got bullied. Um, so I think I... I, I, and yet these days there's a lot about fat shaming and, and uh, it really isn't a nice thing to do, is it? Not that it ever was. But um, yeah, I thought I'd just, just come clean about that. Are you, are you the same, you two? Or, or are you, are you, were you brought up better than I was? Navjoy. I, I don't think it's just your parents, is it? It's this kind of Western society and our obsession with being thin. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's instilled in all of us. And I mean, in our role as GPs, probably we do carry some of that with us. We, you know, what we've talked about in previous episodes, we were products of society as well. Mm. And I think where it becomes a challenge for us is where we equate kind of um, that thinness with health, um, which is not always the case. And actually sometimes, you know, I think there's a whole murky world of associating body shape with health. Mm. Um, I think of course, there are associations of obesity and ill health, um, and there are 
um, extremes on either side of body weight which are associated with ill health but often I find the thing I struggle with is being led by what the patient feels and what they want and actually how what is the relationship to their health and I could but I guess taking those whatever sort of biases we have into the consulting room is, is tricky isn't it obviously we, we hope none, none of us would be um deliberately um unpleasant to someone because of their weight but the, you, you can take some of those residual things with you can't you yeah i think it's interesting i i definitely was raised with the same um unconscious biases regarding weight and kind of the net value or worth that we ascribe to a person on the basis of that um and it's been kind of an active um attempt to recognize and undo those biases or try to counter those biases. What I think is so interesting is the way that our understanding of weight has changed over time. And it's the classic epidemiologic transition, right? Um, When people, before so many things in modern medicine and when people were dying of infectious diseases and mass and didn't have food to eat for half the year, um, to be overweight was a good thing, right? It was a sign of wealth and, you know, at the same time, health in some ways, right? Um, And I certainly saw that moving to Cambodia. Um, I learned a little bit of Khmer and it was, you know, during that learning, it became clear that it was not a positive adjective to say that you were um, skinny. Um, and that people described themselves positively as being a little bit chubby or a little bit overweight. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now the kind of growing wealthy middle class in Cambodia, um, you know, is almost becoming more Western and more weight conscious and, um, you know, exercising in the public spaces in the morning and, trying to move back away from the processed Western foods that had been introduced to those wealthier Mm. classes. So I just think it's very interesting Mm. the way that um, our understanding of weight and what that means for health um, has changed with um, our economic situation. Yeah. And I was looking up some some stats uh, for England about the number of people who are overweight or obese. Um, do you want to have a, a stab, a guess at what percentage? Um, I think this was a few years ago, but what percentage of the, the English population are overweight or obese? 50%. Oh, not bad, not bad. <laughs> Jenny? I, all that I can oh. think is how... <laughs> There's been a staggering rise in the actual percentage of obese Americans, like higher mm. than thirty percent now. But yeah. I don't, I don't know. Okay, I'll okay. give you the answer. Uh, so sixty-three percent have a BMI of over twenty-five. Yeah. So more, wow. most people are are in the in England are overweight or obese. So yeah, huge huge number of people, and um, and yes, there are, but there are those real risks, aren't there? You know, all sorts of. Um, disease, but also a lot of the symptoms that people present with uh, could be improved by by weight loss rather than any other intervention. Uh, And it's always a tricky one to bring up, isn't it, Jenny? But I think that's kind of what you were alluding to earlier, that there's been kind of growing discussion about whether there is such a strict correlation between weight and health, right? And a lot of people now would argue that um, in some cases, in some 
um, clinical circumstances, a little bit overweight can actually be beneficial compared to being underweight or normal weight, right? And that the correlations between obesity and poor health are not actually as clear cut as our societal biases would have led us to believe. Okay. Okay. And then you could also say that for some populations, so I'm um, of South Asian or Indian ethnic origin, or Mm. actually the standard definition of BMI of 20 Mm. to 25 doesn't quite fit in with my risks of things like developing type 2 diabetes, for example. So Mm -hmm. I think it's a really confusing and complex picture and one that is probably not helped by our kind of simplistic, um, you know, making simplistic associations and also by us bringing in our own kind of biases and judgment. So really tricky, I would say, like a lot of things in general practice. Yeah, I've got some relative risks here for for obesity and and condition so type 2 diabetes i was surprised that um this was according to PA, public health england um document i was reading but uh, for diabetes the relative risk is five for men um, but 12 for women i was surprised mm. there's such a disparity mm. um various other things there but that was the the biggest risk factor or, or the highest relative risk of being obese versus a, a, a so-called healthy weight um well, should we should we start to, to move on because we, we've got two great interviews uh, on this the first from um, a GP that that many listeners I think will will, will know of uh, Stephanie Di Giorgio and Navjot you spoke to her about about some of this stuff didn't you tell us more about your conversation yeah so I had a great conversation with Stephanie um, we talked about um, how to bring up weight um, in a consultation how to approach weight management in primary care and and what are the steps you can do to help your patients who are trying to lose weight um what are, how can that approach be adapted in um children um and then we talked a little bit about kind of you know um how how GPs manage the individual kind of aspect of obesity versus the kind of society and wide wider context you can listen to that full interview um, on the Deep Breath In channel. But the snippet that we're going to pick up here is all about the attitudes and biases that healthcare more generally and GPs specifically can bring in um, to a consultation with their patients. I am uh, Stephanie Chidorja, I'm a GP. Um, I have a special interest in obesity, which started uh, as a personal quest, um, having put on a lot of weight myself, and realised that there was very little out there for general practice um, in terms of obesity. It wasn't a huge um, topic of interest, so I, I created a sort of space within which I could learn and work, and it's been fascinating um, and a very interesting journey, yeah. The government would, I mean, I even heard it said that GPs should be ringing up all their patients with overweight and obesity and telling them they're at more risk of COVID and that they need to lose weight. I mean, I can think of no phone. I don't. Can you think of a phone call you'd least like to make or receive? in your life yeah absolutely <laughs> hello it's dr De Giorgio. you're fat you're gonna die if you get covid i mean it doesn't even bear thinking about and i mean even if that were true what would you do with that information like, oh i just uh, it's like i saw a thing today that apparently um gps are supposed to be phoning up their bame patients and saying the same thing it's like 
wow, you're brown. You're more likely to get COVID. Ah, uh, I don't understand. So anyway, so the government would have us believe that we can intervene in a big way. We can't. It is so much bigger than individuals, both patient who has obesity or overweight or practitioner. So GPs can and should treat any patient who comes to them with problems related to obesity or about their obesity with respect, doing all the things that I've just talked about and encouraging. Absolutely, they should. Then we need the bigger layer, which is that general practice needs to accept and learn that obesity isn't an individual failing and lobby for better services for our patients within the massive societal Mm -hmm. structure in which we live. I mean, my ideal would be to have sort of a, because we have this weird tier two, tier three, tier four system of weight Mm -hmm. um, management, which actually might change now because COVID, who knows? Anyway, um, but actually if we could do some community-based good weight management services, perhaps run by GPs who know what they're talking about, um, Mm -hmm. which could then feed into other services, that would be brilliant. But obviously has to be funded, has to be, has to be the workforce for it. Um, But we do need a bit of a change within general practice. You know, when this, when obesity comes up on GP fora, people are pretty mean about patients with overweight. Mm. And I don't like to criticise colleagues, but some people are really horrible. And so we need to be, as a profession, understanding and learning the science, treating the patient in front of us better, but then also lobbying as a as a profession mm. um, for better services. Well, there is um, there is that I've I've heard it being said that fat phobia is one of the last remaining kind of acceptable um, isms Absolutely. Uh, to that exists. How I mean, how do you think we can? I, I find it quite difficult to kind of approach these conversations. I, I think I'm sort of non-judgmental in my approach, but just trying to do it in a way that doesn't shame or stigmatise people, I think is can be really challenging. Yeah. Um, so beyond just kind of, you know, em- the, the kind of approach of empathy, um, what I'm just struggling to even know what I'm asking, but how, what, what do you have any tips on how to approach these conversations in a way that helps rather than harms people, I suppose? I think we have to accept that as individuals, we all have sometimes our own prejudices. And Mm -hmm. for some people, that's weight, you know. And whereas, you know, some of our, some unpleasant people in society have issues about people of different colours, there are people who have real issues about people who, who, who are bigger. And so if, if, if that's, within oneself you have to look at that and say actually this isn't okay the other thing that I have done and when I teach it is to explain that as an organization it's not okay either no one would accept somebody within their surgery making racist jokes but people laugh about the fat patient who came in this morning and couldn't fit on the couch and that's really not all right Mm. so challenging that Mm -hmm. so I you know I you have to have a zero tolerance to that kind of chat in your in your workplace um because it's not okay and it's not acceptable um 
And to say, right, well, why don't we make sure our waiting room has chairs that people who are bigger don't worry about getting stuck in because they've got arms. Let's make sure we have one couch in the surgery that's a proper big bariatric couch and not make a fuss about using it for a patient, but just say, oh, why don't we go into this room today and and use that couch? Mm -hmm. So you have to almost do that first as as a as an organization to then make it clear to individuals that they need to um be better if that's their way of operating so far then with the patient or the person in front of you and that you know it doesn't have to be a patient it could be a colleague it could be lots of people because weight is such a massive problem in society um no it just knowing the science means that you don't stigmatize the person so um you understand you know that it's not easy you don't try and tell them that you know uh, because you did low carb high fat then that's what they need to try and everything would be fine um and it's also understanding the difference between um people who have five six stone to lose and people who have a stone to lose that's a very different scenario so you need to be aware of of that. sorry i'm slightly rambling but but it's 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 really important to take all that background baggage acknowledge it mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. change how you respond to the person in front of you and understand that that person in front of you may well have had hideous experiences at the at, at, when they've gone to see healthcare professionals before mm. and not don't be that healthcare professional, but also acknowledge that that might have been the case. And so if, yeah, so if somebody looks horrified at the thought, it's not because they're a lazy person who likes eating donuts, it's because they've probably cried themselves to sleep, having been told they have to lie on the floor for their smear test before because they'll break the couch. That, you know, we have to be, we have to think very carefully about what's gone on for that person before um Mm. so that's a very long answer to a short question but basically don't be unpleasant (laughs) understand the science (laughs) and and think about how you would want to be treated in that scenario basically it's that simple yeah and I, I yeah I think for some reason obesity seems to be one of those things it comes back to this individual responsibility yep. thing where we can be so quick to blame people rather than look at all the other wider factors that have gone on gone on Absolutely. there and then um I I mean I could talk about this for ages but I was I don't want to keep you um on on the phone for for too long but finally I mean we talked about acknowledging the child's um, psychology and the parent's psychology and then in all of this obviously the clinician has their own psychology that they're contending with and bringing to any consultation in all consultations but I think particularly for weight and about food and you know this is these are universal things we all we all experience our own relationship with eating and, and that sort of thing um well like how do we sort of I don't know handle that within the context of a consultation do you think I think so so there's lots of different theories about sharing your own experiences. Um, mm-hmm. Interestingly, because my patients saw me go from pretty big to small after I had my bariatric surgery, they came in and went, you told me there was no secret to weight loss and you're suddenly skinny. This isn't fair. <laughs> you found the secret. <laughs> well, I did have big surgery. but and, and that's an option for you if you want it. So I think acknowledging your own feelings 
not promoting the thing that has worked for you or dismissing mm. the thing that hasn't worked for you as an individual. Mm-hmm. And if it's really hard for you, ask them to see a different clinician. You know, there are some things that are too difficult mm. for us um, for various reasons. And if someone sort of has had severe anorexia or severe obesity, you know, either, either end of the really difficult life sort of weight issues... If you can't talk about it properly, that's fine. You don't have to, but but make sure they see a colleague who can. Um, but acknowledge that you will bring your own things into it, as you say, and temper that. But saying to a patient, I know, I've been there. I know it's hard. I lost weight and put it all back on again. And quite frankly, it sucks. And, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that it doesn't hurt and it isn't unpleasant because it is and actually I think some patients like that as long as you then don't go on and wax lyrical about your latest diet of choice it's fine but bringing a little bit of yourself in so that they understand that you get it isn't a bad thing in my opinion um other people disagree but that's what I think Well, thanks, Navajo. That was such a good interview. Um, and as you said, you, people can listen to the full interview um, on the Deep Breath In channel if they subscribe. That'll be out probably next next week. Um, but yeah, lots to discuss from that. Where should we start? Jenny, do you want to go first? Yeah, I have so much to say. That was such a great conversation. Um, and I really appreciate so many of the parallels that she brought up with other things we've talked about on this podcast Um, And I guess I just want to say that I think she's so right about how somehow our negative attitudes and reactions to overweight or obese folks have been kind of socially permitted for much longer than a lot of the other prejudices that we've tried to call out. We, the collective medical provider community globally, Um, And so when she was talking about, you know, even a simple thing like reorganizing the physical space of a practice made me think like, you know, in part because of, you know, social change activists who have worked hard for these wins, you know, now clinics have to be designed so that a wheelchair can fit through. And we, we wouldn't blink about needing to make our exam rooms or waiting rooms accessible to um, folks with disabilities, folks who are in wheelchairs. And we wouldn't blink about, you know, using um, the appropriately sized blood pressure cuff for an infant. And um, why should we have such hesitation or resistance to change those things um, for another reason? Um, And gosh, when she said that bit about the patient having had, Mm. you know, a smear test on the floor Mm. made me think about, you know, again, other social justice movements in healthcare and some of the experiences I've heard from transgender patients who've just endured hateful remarks and horribly insensitive comments from their providers Mm. that, Mm. you know, we would not tolerate now. And yet, again, remarks related to overweight or obese patients still sometimes get a chuckle, even if we're cringing more and more now. So can I, uh, I, I guess, 
I, I, this is not my view, but I, I think it's worth mentioning is that um, I think we're sort of brought up in a world where you know we, we we teach ourselves and our children that you know you're in control and you know this is I suppose weight is one of those things where I think in in society at least we think it's something that you can choose you know and if you if you are overweight or obese you can choose to do something about that maybe which is different to some of those other uh, things you you mentioned like race or, or gender whatever um, is is that why we've still got this this hang up or is there something in that do, do we do we need to not you know is there a tension there or is this something we should just ignore Jenny well maybe this is a cynical response but this was another thing that you know struck me about um, what Stephanie said which is that this is yet another example of an unempathetic public choosing to blame the individual in the face of absent social services and help provided by the state, right? Because the state has made urban planning choices around green space and access to safe physical spaces, or because um, we have housing segregation, which means that there are some neighborhoods that don't have access to um, healthy, plentiful, affordable yeah. food. Um, and every high street has got a chicken shop on it. And, right, um, exactly. You can't buy fresh fruit. <laughs> exactly. And we let, you know, we we have kind of accepted these things or not actively tried to mm. change mm. these things. And instead, um, perhaps we've been persuaded by people in power to blame the individual as opposed to, um, mm. you know, really trying to make the more structural changes that we need for a more just society um, in all of these respects. I think this is a tension I've definitely felt in consultations is, you know, you want to do your best to help the patient in front of you who's perhaps come in with I don't know, a new diagnosis of type 2 type two diabetes or, you know, struggling with knee osteoarthritis or whatever it is. And you kind of want to help them. You know, that might be a moment where people are willing and wanting to change. And so you want to help give the best available advice and um, point, point to uh, resources that can help. But at the same time, I think... Um, you know, you want to do that in a way that's empathic and non-judgmental because we know that um, that this isn't becoming obese is not just down to an individual. It's a societal um, issue. It's complex. There are social determinants at play there, and so I think where the individual responsibility piece I think comes in is, um, you know, is perhaps not in if somebody feels empowered to do something. You know, as an individual, they can, but I think we shouldn't. I, I really don't think, particularly we as healthcare professionals, shouldn't be in a in a position where we're kind of perpetuating harm to people by reinforcing reinforcing, you know, wrong, incorrect assumptions about how people have ended mm. up where they are, um, and being judgmental. I think so. I think my approach now is well, having heard Stephanie talk is kind of two pronged. I think. I think it's you know, I've always felt like, oh, what's the point in kind of weight management within an individual consultation? Because so much of it relies on, you know, um, like maybe government policy and the food industry regulation and all of mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But actually, I think there, mm -hmm. there definitely are things that we can promote within consultations. But I think that the, um, I think that what the healthcare profession really needs to work on is our, is our attitude um, and mm. non being non-judgmental. Non yeah. Um, along those lines, I, I also think, you know, kind of similar to what we were talking about um, 
in the contraception episode, it's that, you know, maybe even if we as a healthcare provider see a person and make assumptions about what are the medical or health matters that concern them the most, those might actually not be the patient concerns. Like there might be people who are overweight and who just don't actually want to talk about losing weight. Maybe that is not the right time or not their more pressing concern. And there's this thing in the back of our head, these assumptions we have about what it means to be a good health provider and a good GP. And we need to address everything. And you know, we're not successful if we don't talk to them about weight management, but actually that might not be what they care about or what they want to talk about. Mm. it's hard isn't it because if at the back of your mind you're thinking i think weight is a big factor here uh, i suppose you you need a way so i guess that's a skill we need isn't it and uh, how do you bring it up in a non-judgmental way where if they just don't want to go there you you leave it and move on well if you listen to the whole interview with oh, stephanie yeah. which will be available on the deep breath in channel oh, yeah. um, uh, stephanie will that. go through <laughs> stephanie will go through how to do that and i think cool. um I mean, do listen to it, but I think what she says is that we should be asking for permission about whether we can mm. um, bring it up. Mm. And um, I suppose it, similarly, I I think I'm guilty of that. Um, maybe it's a nihilistic sort of attitude. It's like, what, what you know, I, I don't feel like I've had much success with that. You know, in terms of when I see the patient again, that there having been any change, and um, you know, how much can I do in my role with this patient to support that um, that 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 weight change um sometimes feel it you know I, I, my the time in the consultation could be better spent elsewhere but probably that's something i need to um improve on but i think being supportive and empathic mm, is probably mm. a massive thing that we can all do mm. um, for our patients and just acknowledge that it's difficult yeah so once you're having that conversation with the patient and they're you know they're asking you for your advice about how to lose weight um that can be confusing too and Stephanie talks about you know knowing the science and I suppose it's about knowing in brief how to advise a patient how to lose weight and and what your local services are and and often they're not so great particularly for people with um sort of obesity but 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 not at higher BMIs so over 40 um so that's where we go to next with our next interview um with uh, Navid Sattar, who's a professor of metabolic medicine at Glasgow University. And I started by asking him if there's any evidence that one way of losing weight is any better than another. Uh, and then we had a bit of more of a discussion about how to sustain weight loss. And that interview with Navid is coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medico-legal advice available 24-7 in an emergency. And because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations with individual support that's tailored to your needs. During the current crisis, we know GPs need this flexible support more than ever. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out how we are helping our members through this challenging time, including policy changes, extended membership benefits, and medico-legal advice. Now let's go back to that interview with Naveed Sattar. 
So in terms of what type of diet, all types of diets work. So if you talk about a particular diet, so low calorie, low carb, they all help you lose weight over the course of one or two years. But one of the things I think you would ask me is what's sustainable? And, and, and also we've shown, for example, in the direct study, which was a study looking at low calorie diet and we showed diabetes remission led by Roy Taylor and Mike Lean, Glasgow, Newcastle. You know, we showed that you can reverse diabetes. You undergo a low calorie diet. So for 12 to 20 weeks, you have, sh you know, soups and shakes and 800 calories and you lose 10 to 15 kilograms very early. The, but the people, and I spoke to my colleagues who ran this, the dietitians who are fantastic, the people who managed to sustain that weight loss managed to fundamentally change the type of diet they were having at the end compared to the beginning. The people who didn't succeed were the ones who started to trick back to the main diet before they went under that weight loss. So to sustain weight loss, we have to develop some of those habits. There are lots of diets that can help us lose weight, but to get some level of sustainability of weight loss, and we need a bit more evidence, you kind of have to change some of the fundamentals or the menu of the diet that you used to have before you undertook that initial diet, if that makes sense. So if you, having said that, there are people out there, and I've met some of them, who will still do the five to two. But I don't know how long they can sustain it. There are people who, as we both know, uh, as many of us know, they swear by the low-carb diet. I, I still worry about the sustainability of that over the long term. I still worry about its effects on, on because it's more saturated fat, does it actually increase the risk of some chronic complications? I don't know. We just haven't got long enough studies. So what I'm saying to you, there's a range of options that get us rapid weight loss. Everybody can lose weight. The question is, can you sustain that weight loss? And for that, I think people have to undergo a fundamental change. Most people who come into my clinic and your clinic kind of know what the right things are to eat, is that they've not developed the habit to liking those things. And I think the biggest trick we miss, and this is something that was done by uh, a colleague from UCL who sadly passed away, um, was that actually you need to retrain your palate to enjoy the better quality foods. So again, as a typical example, when I found out my weight was going up a little bit, I started to realise I need to eat a bit more fruit and veg. So for every meal I have in the evening, absolutely every meal, and I say this to my patients, one trick might be for you, is always have some salad with every meal. And if they say to me, well, I don't like cucumber, tomato, and I say to them, well, you have to start trying a few and find out what you enjoy. And by process of having that salad, you're getting yourself fibre and the evidence base for fibre is real. There's some trial evidence that fibre helps weight loss, um, that you will start to enjoy some of the salad. It means that you'll have less of the other stuff, the carbs, the less potatoes and other things. And the key thing is that process of enjoying that salad will take you a few weeks perhaps to start to get to enjoy but certainly compositionally it can also mean that you can still have the treats that you enjoy but they become less common and that's because you've enriched your palate to enjoying some of the healthier less dense less calorific foods that gives you more fiber more fruit and veg less saturated fat etc etc and that and that can be slow or fast for some people actually it's quite simple for some people they know that their problem is they're just eating too much chocolate and you can say to them they have to stop eating that chocolate but they will still get a bit hungry so they have to try and get used to eating something else and there that habit forming might be well 
get used to enjoying an apple or a banana or an orange or something else. And the evidence base is, for example, uh, it was a colleague in UCL, she showed that if you give kids small amounts of veg over 14 days, they will start to enjoy it. They start to enjoy the texture and taste. Okay, for example. I've been trying that for about two and years I think, of mine, but it's still not getting there. <laughs> well, no, yeah. no, but it'll happen. I mean, yours are younger. My, I, you know, I tried that for years with my with my daughter, and she didn't get. It. And suddenly, now she's now so you know when she became a teenager, she started yeah. to enjoy these foods. So I thought, oh, I, you know, I quite like that. Yeah, we'll keep so trying on that. It works. Um, I want to yeah, ask you keep couple, trying. About a couple more things. Um, firstly. Uh, just about sort of strategies to communication style or almost like you know in that if you've just got like a minute in your consultation and you've, you've managed to raise the issue of obesity and their weight um you know is it better to to be a bit bold and say you know if you don't if you don't lose weight this is going to happen to you or you know i think the, the nudge is much oh, more fashionable yeah. but you know I, I still have patients i can think of who said well dr x said this 20 years ago and i didn't touch a you know, a fried thing ever since, and that really helped me. So I, I wonder what, what where the truth lies in all this. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. I mean, I think there's been a lot about this in, in, in recent papers about stigma yeah. of, of obesity, and we mustn't... Um, my personal view is, um, and the approach I take, I, 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 I think most people know the risks. I think it's pretty obvious what the risks are as they're out in the community. And most people, before you even ask them if they're obese, they don't want to be obese. You know, they've got to that point in their life. It's, you know, 99% of people ha- haven't got there without trying not to be. So anything we can give them to help is going to be beneficial. We, you know, we can talk to them about harms. So I think the conversation has got to be very supportive and say, look, we are part of your team to help you lose weight. I'm, I'm going to give you a number of options to that. And I, I don't mind if you fail, but I would like you to try. Mm. Mm. If that makes sense, because we we can't in ten minutes go through everything in a diet. We can't, you know. If just by chance I came to, you know, I walked at this one particular patient was drinking too much milk or whatever, you know. But we need to tell them here are the things that you know um, that definitely work, and we need to give them that away with it. And we need to say to them, look, why don't you try one or two of these things mm. and come back? And if it doesn't work, we'll talk about one or two of the other things. And we need to say to them, look, it's no shame in feeling. Why don't you try? And we've got to try new things. Everything we've tried in the past. And of course, it's on the background of the, the environment has become much more obesogenic, hasn't it? So it's, it's mm. damn hard. It's hard. And it's particularly hard for people in depo- deprived yeah. communities. And we so know that's, this. That's actually the last thing I wanted to ask you about. Because um, you know, we're talking about this in quite a medical sense, aren't we? And, and there's debates about do you, do you even consider obesity as a disease or not? But isn't that kind of getting the sort of societal factors off off the hook or you know the, the impact that government can have or yeah i know you're right you're 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 absolutely right tom and it, you know if i if i you know if i was fortunate enough or maybe unfortunate enough to ever be in government i mean i'm not do mean that but you, you know what i'm saying the, the reality is sometimes i think we all sit there and we think we're just putting sticking plaster on something that is society isn't it that if we can't change the food environment the activity environment we're wasting our time and 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 i do wonder like that i mean the biggest impact by far would be if we can if the government can engage with the food and drinks industry to lead them to make far better healthier quality foods and cheaper high quality fruit and veg 
and also at the same time increase the price of unhealthy foods so that people are gravitating towards healthier because it's better for their pockets. That, I think, will help better than anything that any of us can do. So without much subconscious effort, people are going to eat a better quality diet. Yeah, that would be brilliant. They need to be brave. They need to, I mean, the reality is the food industry are not going to do this voluntarily. Food industry is making a lot of profit. They need to make slightly less profit and make better quality foods. That's what we need to do. Uh, So we need to do our part. And at the same time, we need to lobby government to improve the food environment. Because we can only do so much. We're, we're, we are still, you know, slowing weight gain, a little bit of weight loss. But the thing, the big thing that's going to slow obesity, reverse it, has got to be change in the food environment, the activity environment. And the problem is half our community grew up never eating bloody salad yeah. or fruit or veg. And, and, they're, and they're, their taste buds are repulsed because they're, they're adapted to dense calories. <laughs> that's the part. And that is the big problem. You know, and they're never going to enjoy it unless you see it. And that's it. The other problem is, of course, you know, if they go and buy healthy fruit and veg, it tastes rubbish. You know, cheap not the, yeah, sorry, the yeah. cheap versions. It's rubbish. You know, I've tried to buy cheap apples and against, and that's why the food industry has to buy, you know, we have to make better foods available. But you and I know it's, a, it's going to be a long journey, Tom. That was so interesting. I think um, what Naveed was saying about um, setting people up for failure or not setting people up for failure, you know, being able to try anyway, That's that was so resonant for me. You know, um, I think often people worry about, you know, oh, my GP will be disappointed in me or I'll be letting them down if nothing's happened. And of course, while some form of external accountability may be helpful. Um, I think he's right. It does stop people from trying sometimes if, you know, they're already worried about failing. And we know it's not easy. So, you know, we should be more explicit with patients, I think, about, you know, have a go and uh, don't worry. See what happens. Yeah. It reminds me of um, a coaching course I did where one of the key things was to set a point in time where you review the goal. And mm. um and that really helps, uh, even if the goal isn't isn't reached. But um, it's hard to value that follow up appointment for that mm. purpose. And maybe we need to sh- shift our um, idea about what what is an important thing to see a patient again about, even if it's to check in about the weight. Um, I think that that's a good use of time. But um, one one thing here, I, I thought it's really interesting about retraining the taste buds, uh, mm. or just yeah, you know, how do you sustain uh, and build these habits? Uh, one thing he told me about was he, he's he's trained himself to like shredded wheat in the mornings for breakfast. Um, so um, so I bought myself some shredded wheat and I had my first bowl this morning. Uh, <laughs> Wait, like uh, truly shredded wheat or like the frosted oh, mini wheats? Oh no, proper proper shredded wheat. Yeah. <laughs> I had a whole bowl. It it was disgusting, but I. I <laughs> I'm How long hoping... will it take, Tom? He two said about, about a month, I think. So um, <laughs> I'll, I'll bet you in two episodes' time, you can ask me how my shredded wheat diet's going. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, good luck with that, Tom. But I think he's absolutely right. Like, you, when you... I mean, I love those kind of, you know, sometimes you'll come across one of those quirky articles or podcasts, which is all about how the food industry tests out tests out you know their food and how much energy they put into you know the mouthfeel of foods mm. and the taste and the things that will get us 
like coming back for more. Yeah. And um, certainly if my addiction to Walker's sensation Thai sweet chili crisps is anything to go by, they've put, I mean, yeah. I, I can wax lyrical about this, but it's the crunch and the taste and the, all of that. And, you know, and I, I will eat a whole giant sharing bag if given half the chance. But you touch on such an interesting point and there has been, you know, different theories out there about cravings and how to approach those with respect to, you know, a healthy diet or one that promotes weight loss. And some people say, if you, you know, make too many decisions to say no to something that you want, eventually your decision-making power will crumble and you will give in and overeat or binge or whatever. Um, And the other camp is kind of like, Give yourself the thing that you're actually craving, but in a reasonable portion so that that's satisfied. And then you can proceed with eating, you know, a healthy diet. And I think it is really interesting. I I thought, you know, he was excellent. And I also really appreciate the piece here about retraining the palate and counseling around that. But there is so much more to food than this, right? Like, Food is social. Food is cultural. Food is, for a lot of people, comfort. And um, I'm sure you guys have also heard about mm-hmm. kind of like the lockdown love handles. That was on the radio here last week because people, you know, have, you know, all the carby goodness of sourdough breaking, sourdough baking during lockdown. And people, <laughs> you know, I, I just think that um, mm. it is really, it's, yeah, it just, it's a testament to what Stephanie was saying. It's really hard. It's really complex. And, um, you mm. know, yeah. And I guess to, sh- to, to the, the, the latter part of his interview saying, you know, these are, feels like sticking plastics a lot of the time, doesn't it? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, there's such bigger bigger um, things going on than than what we can perhaps achieve in, in a consultation. Um, but he, was, he had quite a... I suppose an interventionalist approach to the problem, didn't he? Um, which is, uh, yeah, do, do you agree with that? That we that, that we need to to force the food companies and to to do this, or are you more to free market types? I think it's a bit of everything, isn't it? So um, I think trying to get as political. It's just, deep breath in is getting political. <laughs> I was going to say, I think regular listeners will have a pretty clear sense of where we stand uh, on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think his points about fair enough regulation were really good ones and important ones. The industry has been notoriously difficult to regulate, very Mm. powerful, certainly in, you know, due to their lobbying power and other things. Um, and, And I guess the second question that I wanted to put to you guys is when we do this counseling, how much do we emphasize food or whatever diet pattern or palate retraining compared to exercise is is one more important are they both important mm. well i asked uh, that it wasn't in the clip we played but navid mentioned that um it's very difficult to i mean it's possible but very very difficult to lose weight with physical activity alone and we, we talked for a bit about physical activity i think he said something like an hour a day um uh is is needed if, if uh, we didn't describe in detail but how how much activity but um yeah, I think it's very difficult. So he was advocating that this is primarily done through diet with activity. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that exercise has all of its other benefits, you know, on mental health and on other mm. aspects of physical health as well. 
but yeah i always thought the the sort of received wisdom around uh ex was around weight loss is that about 80 percent of it is your food and about 20 percent of it is your exercise mm. i mean it's so difficult though because i think this is one of those areas where you hear so many conflicting things there's so many different messages about what diet works best and actually i think what was helpful from that interview with naveed is that you can make that more simple um for people and to try and you know focus on practical messages that people can implement easily in their in their mm. everyday lives i mean another thing that we didn't get a chance to to put into the clip was it that was one of his um big suggestions really was that we need an, a really unified national or maybe even international approach where you know on on one side of a4 that you know you, you can just hand this to any patient or have it on any website which is you know this is evidence-based approaches to to weight loss um mm. and um because it is so c confusing uh and i suppose again it's another big industry isn't it is the sort of weight loss mm. um you know books and and uh strategies but I think that would help. I don't, I, I don't know what, I don't think I have anything like that I can give to patients or send them a link to something apart from the NHS website, perhaps. I think um, that's really interesting. Stephanie also touched on that, right? Like we need to be careful also when we're talking with patients about, you know, how much we kind of focus on something because of a personal or, mm, you know, mm. um, recent experience and how much we inadvertently kind of put something forward compared to other things, which as Naveed says, are basically um, equivalent. The only thing that I've used, which I frequently draw out for people is, you know, the plate method. And um, I'm not using the correct term for that, but where you draw a plate and essentially three quarters of the plate is supposed to be um, vegetables and and lean protein and then a quarter for carbohydrates um, that's kind of a quick and easy diagram mm. for kids but yeah it would be good to have you know because we've gone from the food pyramid to a modified pyramid to other types of models and it would be good to have some consensus around that it is hard to yeah I, I agree I agree and I think um the point I've got to, and I think in the interview, the full interview with Stephanie, we talked about, you know, what are some of the simple messages? And one actually universal theme, which um, seems to come up, came up in that interview with Stephanie, and it's come up in the um, collection of articles we published in the Food for Thought series, which the BMJ has um, been publishing for a few years now, um, is about processed foods and avoiding um, highly processed foods. And I think that seems to be, you know, that's something quick to convey. It ties back into this, um, you know, this thing about the food industry making sort of very energy dense, a highly calorific, but very tasty and satisfying foods. Um, but avoiding, you know, crisps, cakes, biscuits, chocolate, all of that um, as much as possible does seem to be a kind of quick message and less suspect less uh less susceptible to you know this idea of oh should it be low carb should i do intermittent fasting um whatever actually that that applies that's kind of cross-cutting so I, I i guess um given the current interest and in, with, with covid and obesity you, know, you may be seeing more patients with this what what do you think you're going to say to them ne next time a patient comes in to ask you about losing weight jenny i was hoping you wouldn't ask me first <laughs> yeah i think the things that I want to bring into the next visit about this are 
Um, not necessarily asking permission, but asking whether a patient um, wants to talk about their weight. Um, and I am hoping to remember Stephanie's wisdom of bringing a bit of ourself in, but trying to remember that, you know, um, there isn't one diet strategy that matters more than another. Um, and, you know, suggesting a couple options and falling back on the benefit of our long-term relationships with our patients to revisit this going forward and um, try to be as supportive as I can to what the patient wants, I guess. Enough to it. Yeah, I think similarly, I think um, I think a big sort of message for me is that this, it's not a one-off consultation. It's mm. not like 10 minutes and job done it's um uh sorry to use the word journey but it is a journey and it will be um you know uh, i think probably the role for gps in all of this is you know trying to point out evidence-based resources where we can but also just trying to be a source of support um uh, non-judgment and help i mm. i i suppose mm. so just trying to sort of make that really clear to patients is you know that we're here for them and in the best way that we can be mm. and i'm wondering if i need to or i ought to to lobby my ccg that yeah that, that we need better um services to refer to knowing that 10 minutes isn't enough really for for, for a lot of people um um it, yeah i maybe uh, need to make some emails to them and <laughs> see what i can do not that, I, not that they'll listen to me, but... <laughs> and refuse to make try. those COVID calls. <laughs> I just love the idea of like, oh, we've got an email from Tom Nolan. We better, <laughs> we better do this. We Tom better, Nolan's yeah. on the case. that's the end of the episode really we're getting to the end of the episode um thank you to stephanie and to navid uh and as we've mentioned a couple of times you'll be able to listen to the full interview with stephanie on the deep breath in uh, channel so please subscribe there and leave us a review as well if you'd like uh thank you to to our producer duncan jarvis uh, for putting this all together and uh let's go to our deep breath out jenny um i think you've uh, sorted this out for us this week because after my terrible origami folding last time we... so for this episode's deep breath out i'm turning to my friend and colleague dr john okrit he's medical director of a federally qualified health center in washington state and was a co-resident of mine in um, the bronx where he brought a poetry intervention to our entire inpatient medical floor, um, helping to give patients a voice through written expression and poems. Um, and he's written a collection of Corona sonnets. Hi, this is John O'Krent, and I'm going to be reading three poems from a project that I've been working on since March that's called Corona Sonnets, and they are an extended cycle of sonnets, um, often referred to as a crown of sonnets, because the last line of the preceding sonnet is then repeated somehow as the first line of the next. 
Um, usually a crown of sonnets consists of seven, um, but I've been just writing them um, as a way of processing coronavirus and what what we're going through. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I've got 43 of them so far, and I'm going to be reading three. The three that I'm reading were originally published in Sixth Finch, which is a great online um, literary journal. So this picks up kind of towards the beginning, sort of the middle of, of the cycle. May 18th, 2020. Their drooping shoulders demonstrate how grief overflows its soft containers runs down arms and falls from fingers and pools about the feet of the couple I saw this morning picking up their bed from the sidewalk and the woman at the bus stop not getting on and the man turning racks of ribs at the barbecue spot just open after two months shut, smoke pouring from his grill, obscuring the cross, the trinkets on the wall, to inherit the earth is to inherit loss. Forty years ago today and seventy miles south, Mount St. Helens blew, killing birds, deer, bear by the thousand, and at least fifty-seven people, one of whom ran from the blast for miles, then collapsed, drowned in the air, turned ash. May 24th. The air turned ash, the ash turned earth, the earth turned grass, and the musk ox grazed it while we watched from the perimeter of the zoo, closed since March. Memorial Day weekend and everyone out is in a mask, their eyes like tired swimmers surfacing with gasps. My daughter reaches for my mask and babbles, Max, Max ox. Max off, muck ox. U.S. deaths near 100,000, an incalculable loss. I can only read 10 of their names before reaching for soft abstraction. The musk ox hangs its impossible head. Even the duck tucks its bill under wing and sleeps. But look up, small birds breach the everywhere surface of the air sing and want nothing. May 25th. Sing and want nothing, I say to myself as I walk in the woods with my daughter. Incongruous date that commemorates the dead and the beginning of summer. The mood is gray this Memorial Day. The rain doesn't fall so much as prick the air at the edge of my face. My face, my face, I screamed fifteen springs past, emerging thrilled from an unfrozen river. Being young was nothing but intimacy with beginning. But the world is older than ever now. My daughter wants to touch each tree. So we move slowly among centuries of trunks, her small voice demanding more touch, more touch.